0: Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering,
1: and technology. So at the end of this year, we are placing a small spacecraft called a 6U CubeSat, fun homework assignment, to we'll look that up. So a 6U CubeSat about the size of two loaves of bread. And on that satellite are 12 small thrusters, which we're testing. And that satellite is going on the world's biggest rocket called Artemis One. That's going to be launched at the end of this year. And that's going to take our satellite, along with a whole bunch of other, you know, more important NASA missions, But it's going to take our satellite out past the moon into deep space. Many, many millions of kilometers away from Earth, much, much farther than the Moon.
0: Hi, I'm Tim Troop Noonan, host of Horsepower to Hyperloops in the Mix series, where we talk to newsmakers and innovators from around the GMI and Kettering community. And that was Wes Faylor, GMI class of ninety-two and the founder and CEO of Miles Space. Talking about the satellite, he started in a maker space and which will head into outer space later this year. Wes, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tim. Pleasure. Wes, this entire adventure started with a college hobby of building a plasma thruster, which you dropped for over 20 years while you worked as a software engineer and then picked up again. I was actually interested in talking to you because I was going to build a plasma thruster myself in college, but I decided instead to just collect beer cans from our fraternity parties. Seriously, Wes, tell us what a plasma thruster is.
1: Sure. Well, first thing, a plasma thruster is uh, not rocket science. Getting it efficient and getting it very nice and such, that is rocket science. But the basics is actually simpler than what people think. So plasma, that's the glowing gas we all see inside of uh, neon signs. Probably wherever you got those beer cans in college had a neon sign around there. (laughs) So that's that glowing gas where you've got their nice normal atoms where you've ripped an electron off of it. So you've got this positive ion, negative electron swirling around and it's so hot they glow. So that's a plasma. So the first thing a plasma thruster has to do is make plasma. So it all starts with that spark that we all know and love. It helps us find our beer cans. It helps us find dinner. It helps us find everything these days. And then some extra high voltage to give us something to tug against. You've got to have something to push off or pull against to get to any kind of force. So it
0: creates a thrust, which you can use to power things like rockets and satellites. And that is what you created conceptually in college and then returned to 20 years later. You found some errors, made some corrections, and then set about actually building it. And now, tell us what it's going to do.
1: So, at the end of this year, we are placing a small spacecraft. It's called a 6U CubeSat. Fun homework assignment. Go look that up. It's called a 6U CubeSat, about the size of two loaves of bread. And on that satellite are 12 small thrusters, which we're testing. And that satellite is going on the world's biggest rocket, called Artemis 1. That's going to be launched at the end of this year. And that's going to take our satellite, along with a whole bunch of other, you know, more important NASA missions, but it's going to take our satellite out past the moon into deep space, many, many millions of kilometers away from Earth, much, much farther than the moon. And our satellite is going to use those thrusters to get set up a nice orbit, and talk back to Earth, maintain its attitude control, and really showcase actually a lot of science that some STEM student experiments are doing. We're just a, the humble vehicle for these STEM students.
0: Well, that's really, really cool that you started something in college, and it's now going to power something millions and miles into what NASA's calling, because this was a competition to get this, the Deep Space Derby. Am I correct? Yeah, that's true. Tell me a little bit about the NASA Cube Challenge, and I know it's been going on for several years. What was the, the premise of it, and how did your group fit in?
1: Well, I love what NASA's doing here. NASA looked at the concept of a contest to spur creativity in the public, as opposed to, uh, you know, say one business trying out its one idea. They said, let's try to get hundred different ideas, 50 different ideas, tried and see which ones work and which ones don't. So NASA sponsored a contest and said the three winners of that contest will get a ride on, well, not winners per se, but three satellites designed during that contest will get to ride on this Artemis One launch. Again, world's biggest rocket, so it kind of sells itself as a contest because who doesn't want to play in that? So they started the NASA CubeQuest Challenge officially part of the Centennial Challenges program because NASA has a whole suite of these type of contests. And they specifically had a call for just plain citizen inventors. Remember, I went to GMI. I have a wonderful degree, but it's not the aerospace degree you would classically associate with putting a satellite on a rocket. So They wanted citizen inventors. They wanted to see the creativity in team organization, in design, in mission planning, and execution. They wanted to see that kind of creativity, what America can really do. And so who couldn't get involved with this. A uh, friend approached me, highlighted it to me, and it was like a grenade going off in my brain. I had to do something with this idea. You cannot not do something with this.
0: What were you up to at the time, and how long ago was that that he introduced this idea to you?
1: I think that was about... um, uh, 2015, space is a marathon, not a sprint. <laughs> That's when the contest was starting. Might have been 2014 when the, they made the pre-announcement. It was near my birthday in the summer of that, of whatever year that was. I apologize. Timelines are not the thing in my brain. My brain is a uh, bag of marbles. So I'm relying on your <laughs> interview skills to piece it together, please. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember I was actually out in, uh, on the beach here in Florida. And my friend called me, you know, I was just relaxing. I went to the beach in Dunedin and relaxing. And my friend called and says, look, as a a fellow inventor, because he's got some cool inventions too, says, as a fellow inventor, I've got an idea for you. This contest, NASA is looking for citizen inventors. They're looking for the wild ideas. You've been working on this plasma thruster for a while. It's time to uh, get real about it. Show it to them and find out if this is a hobby or if this is has potential. And I can appreciate his pun because we work with uh, voltage as a potential in the thruster, and he knew that was a pun that would hook me, and he was right. <laughs> uh, he quickly sold me on it. I read up on it and just had exploded. Got to do something with this. So then
0: you did and what is it you did? Because you, you're obviously, you have to pull some other people together. I love the idea. It sort of strikes me as Mr. Chips goes to space at this point. (laughs) You have to pull together some other citizen inventors and people to help you make this happen, to help you enter this contest. So what transpired then?
1: The very first thing you have to do, like when you're reading a good fiction book, you have to sort of pretend. And in this case, I call it willful naivety because if you knew (laughs) If you knew how long the path was before you, you might never take the journey. And so a little willful naivety ignited my passion. And then I went to the Tampa Hacker Space, part of the maker movement, which I'm a big, firm believer in. Went to the Tampa Hacker Space, had That's where all my friends came from here in Tampa. When I moved from Michigan in 12, my friends in Tampa came from the Hacker Space. That's how I met like-minded people. They were very like-minded in terms of having some passion for this, and a bunch of them joined in with me on this project. That felt very good. I mean, that felt really good, honestly, to get that kind of support. They saw me passionate. They know I've got a little willful naivety, and they turned theirs on, too, just so we can get some momentum going in this project. That's a propulsion pun, by the way. It's full of them. I'm sorry. I can't (laughs) help it. Uh, So you need momentum in this kind of project, literally, The naivety got us started. You know, we pulled together a team that ultimately, through the years, has probably been, uh, I'm a bad leader, I can't remember this number. It's like 25 or 30 of us, over a wide range, including an actual aerospace engineer for quite a while, which was very helpful. But at the beginning, no actual aerospace engineers, a lot of how-to books, a lot of videos, and a lot of looking at the uh, syllabus, how NASA is going to judge you as, you know, our study guide. They're going to judge us on this. They'll learn exactly this. But yeah, it was the hackerspace that really pulled us together and started Team Miles. So you had
0: to pour, and your partners had to pour a lot of funds into this, and you had a lot of people, a lot of those people didn't work full-time, right? So it it was really doing the best you could with what you had, right?
1: Absolutely. In fact, NASA wants us to keep track of that. Because they're curious what these kind of missions end up costing. So every month we have to account for hours and what the equivalent commercial cost of those hours would be for us, as well as you know actual expenditures. And actual expenditures have been in the uh, several hundred thousand dollar range. You need some late career people who can help with that in-kind costs in terms of labor. I think we're, we're well over five million dollars in uh, labor hours at this point. It is a lot of work.
0: Seems to me rather savvy of NASA to, one, get a lot of different ideas, but also do so on somebody else's nickel.
1: It's brilliant. I mean, that's that's the rocket science that you expect out of NASA. It's, it's brilliant. And they really structured the required documentation so that they got maximum insight into the uh, the process of how these were created and the potential so that they can decide for themselves if they want to change anything inside and they have a, a sort of a pre-done case study I mean, they normally pay about 5 million dollars for this kind of case study permission but that's
0: for you on the back end. So you've got them, some money coming from winning different steps of the process. Is that's that correct?
1: True. That's true. Given that NASA's goal was to you know, educate themselves and jumpstart an industry, and they are very interested in, in our people, they divided a $5 million prize purse up into lots of small prizes. For instance, the first two years of the contest were all about deciding which teams would fly on the rocket. So there's money being given out during that time. And then there's but the bulk of the prize purse, you know, 90% of the prize purse is in space. Now, we're doing the the Deep Space Derby. Honest to God, head-to-head race, there's another satellite that's going to be running right side of us, getting kicked out at the same time. and We are racing to go farthest distance from Earth but still successfully able to communicate. We're racing to go to survive the longest time in deep space, and again, still able to communicate. And we are racing to just to pour, poor, poor data down upon Earth to get the most data transmitted to Earth successfully in a short period of time and over a long duration of time. So sprint and marathon. So there's several different prizes all related to Deep Space Derby. There's four different prizes related to that in longevity, communication burst, communication longevity over a long period, and then distance. So there's lots of these prizes that is divided up so that there's some money almost for everybody, but it also really ignites the industry. So there's a lot of facets to the mission. Uh, I, I love that. Take me
0: back to the beginning. So when you guys got together and guys, I, it's men and women, of course, as right. I it. you basically said, okay, you have to perfect the thruster, but you also had to build the shoebox size satellite. Am I correct?
1: Oh, very true. Very true.
0: So and that's what you've been doing for the last couple of years.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Literally the last five years. It's quite the hobby. Now, uh, our first pass, there's a tremendous amount on the internet. The space industry is really pushing the small parts for this to the internet. And so our first pass is we came up with five different satellite designs internally, all based off of commercial things. And we said, look, we only want to invent the thruster. What else can we buy? That was very informative and got us educated. We've had some sponsorship. As we haven't been able to afford all the parts, so we've had some sponsorship. We had a uh, beautiful Star Tracker donated by Doug Sinclair. That's going to really make a big difference. We've had uh, really amazing radio antennas donated, just doing incredible things. So we have some commercial things, like, such as the big donation items, but others we've end, uh, ended up inventing, like a couple of the team members that came to us, Said their business wanted to invent a new flight computer. Would we fly it? Okay, we're inventing the thruster. We'll take the risk on a new flight computer. It's a brilliant computer. We've had a lot of that kind of thing where we've had to invent something. We partnered with a new solar with a solar cell company that wanted to get into space demos. You know, so those things have really opened a lot of doors for us. A little partnerships and invention. We ended up not buying nearly as many things as you, we would have in those first five. And having to invent and design our own circuit boards for power, command and control. I guess you'd say designed the computer itself, even though that's really one of our members company did that. So quite a bit, quite a bit, quite a, quite a journey.
0: Tell me in a thumbnail, what is innovative and new about the plasma thruster, which I assume you've patented?
1: Yes, patent was granted in 2018. It took about four years to get it granted. That is uh, quite the process as well. So it is a very different way of accelerating particles because it separates the plasma. Normally, well, we separate the positive and negative, And normally, I guess, other plasma thrusters separate it. But they accelerate only the positive and the negative kind of leave slowly. There's other means for dealing with that. Ours accelerates both the positive and the negative through separate channels, which okay, okay, well, shouldn't that make sense? But no, there's a lot of teaching that says don't do it. In fact, when I when I picked the plasma thruster back up and started to started to really work on that, I noticed that everything I really wanted to do, I'm like, oh, I got a great brilliant idea, patented, another brilliant idea patented, and not that those patents are bad. It's just I wanted to do something there. I I wanted to contribute. There is that that drive, I must create, must innovate, must pride, I guess. So I I looked at the bibliographies on the key patents, and they all traced back to a a book from the late 50s, early 60s. And in the first few pages, it very nicely teaches the differential equations for this. You know, those those are the hard equations, right? The things people hate, the differential equations. You thought algebra was rough. Anyway, it teaches the differential equations, and it says, now, if you only accelerate the positives, then these become a nice, clean little bit of algebra that you can do on a blackboard. Isn't that awesome? And, you know, that's very friendly. So the whiteboard behind me, that's the modern tool. It was still the tool back then. And it's not like they said you can't accelerate the negatives as well. It's just if you do, it's still a differential equation that never never settles down to plain algebra. I'm like, I know a thing or two about computer programming. I don't think I need this to go to algebra. We can leave it at differentials. And started the journey of trying to get something running or accelerate both. Let's break that rule and see where it leads.
0: So basically, the old book said, was written before computers. And you're like, well, we have a computer. We can do that now.
1: Yeah, it was written right on the cusp. And it Uh was inconvenient, very inconvenient to do what they need to do it's still inconvenient to simulate honestly because there's so many plasma particles it's still a tricky area when people crack that you're going to see big explosions in nanotech because plasma is a great tool for that well yeah break that rule in doing this,
0: you won 20000 here, 20000 there in these little contests, but that's not anywhere close to the dollars you were investing, expending in time, et cetera, et cetera. But you generated, as you've implied, a couple of products and items that you have also begun to generate some of their own income to help you out. Am I correct?
1: That's very correct. Yes. Yeah, so necessity, desperation. Mother of invention. And as part of the CubeQuest challenge, we have to communicate with the satellite and tell NASA how we're going to do that. And we looked at the cost of uh, hiring that out, hiring out ground stations that already exist. And it was prohibitive with several zeros worth of prohibitive. Take all the O's and prohibitive and add a few commas and several of them. And it's, it's prohibitive. And so we said, look, we've got to be able to invent something here. That started a journey that actually goes back to GMI. It started an inventive journey where we created signal processing algorithms that cracked the code and allow us to work with very small antennas, affordable antennas. And then that led to a pending patent, still pending, on those kind of things. And then that led us to a journey where we found a sponsoring communication company, somebody who else saw the same trouble in the marketplace and said so there's an opportunity. We caught them as they were entering, a company called Atlas. We caught them as they were entering and they sponsored us. They they ended up sponsoring the mission, providing communications, and are also interested in our communication technology. And now we have an extremely tight relationship with them that has led to a very successful Air Force contract we just finished. Really the algorithms really shined on that. Even led to innovation where we're now the company, you know, this is not Team Miles, this is a company area you see behind me, we're actually now contributing to national defense with a space radar that all came out of the, the same underlying signal processing that was born of that desperation of meeting the need in that contest. And I can't say I would have gone down that path without that demand.
0: We are talking with Wes Failer, CEO of Miles Space and head of Team Miles. So basically, you have Miles Space, which is a formal corporate entity, which is producing these spin-off technologies, which is a whole entity of its own, but operating side by side with Team Miles, which is a more informal group, which is the one building the satellite for NASA. Is that correct?
1: Yes, quite correct. Team Miles is about 30 people over time, about half a dozen active at any one time. Miles Space is about three or four of us full-time working on the signal processing.
0: You told me last time we talked about where the name came from, Miles. I was assuming it was some formal name of one of the founders like yourself. Uh, It's not. Tell me about that.
1: I don't have a bow tie nice enough to justify that explanation. (laughs) It's actually cooler. We were struggling to find a name. We wanted to work off the rule that Space is kind of classy. You know, you, you need a nice, classy name. It's got to have something respectful because there's a lot of work goes into this. And again, on the beach in Dunedin, happened to be about 11 o'clock, strolling along under a full moon, staring at the moon, talking with a friend on the phone, looking for inspiration. And he was saying, well, you know, how many miles out does this spacecraft got to go? I'm like, hey, hey, we work in kilometers here, remember? But miles... And it hit me, I just finished reading a great sci-fi book about artificial intelligence that ended with a Robert Frost poem. And it struck me that it well describes what our little craft has to do. It's gotta go out there and it's gotta go a lot of miles. And it has to actually keep a lot of promises back to us here on Earth. You know, Promises we're telling the judges we're gonna do, promises we're telling our family this is worthwhile, promises we're telling our career this is worthwhile. So we named it Miles after the Robert Frost poem about the woods are lovely, dark and deep, but I have miles to go and promises to keep before I sleep. That, hey, this is lovely, but I have a lot of work to do and I can't quit until I'm done. And I thought that really just captured the spirit we all had in our heart and the spirit we're pouring into this little little gizmo.
0: That's very cool. I love the poetic element of that amidst all the uh, space technology. That's very cool. Well, now, I want to ask you a little bit about the future and where this is going once this thing gets out in space. But before I do that, there's a question that I'm sure is in other people's mind, and I have a little insight into it from our previous conversation. But you indicated that you were not in aerospace, And I know you spent 20 years in software engineering, which had nothing to do with space or something. So give me a little bit background about how you got where you are now from some place that was not related to space, starting with GMI. You were, what was your major there?
1: I'm a degree bachelor in manufacturing systems engineering. One of the first couple classes to go through that brilliant program.
0: So then what has been the the thrust of your career without going step by step necessarily, but generally what were your energies over those years before you got into the NASA cube quest challenge?
1: You know, I'm going to rewind for you with a surprise rewind. We didn't talk about in sixth grade in a little farming town, Millington, Michigan. I had the most amazing science teacher. He really let us work odd hours, and really explore the science. And me and a brilliant friend, uh, Leon, we actually invented a small particle accelerator. Now, these days, with what I know, I understand just how small an accomplishment that was because it could be quickly taught. But for a sixth grader thinking ahead like that without the benefit of the internet, that was really awesome. Fascinated. Hey, I can make something. And that's very empowering so I worked on that all through high school. It informed all my computer programming knowledge, and it formed my decision to be a manufacturing systems engineer. I wanted to have something to do with spacecraft in outer space, and I figured I could not learn how to build a factory, an automated factory. I couldn't learn that on my own. I needed to be taught that, but my dream at the beginning of getting into GMI was that I would somehow use that knowledge to automate manufacturing in space,
0: so, so space has always been uh, this sort of dream hanging in your mind.
1: Yeah, it's always the subspace behind everything. It's always been the driver. And that manufacturing system engineering decision with the broad scope, material science, the, uh, just everything involved in it, was perfect for my dream of wanting to be able to build gizmos that would build gizmos in space and use thrusters to push them around and really get us out there exploring. Now, about halfway through college, that gets to be overwhelming to manage the reality of chemical engineering at the co-op job and the thruster work. And I had to really focus on the day job, if you would. So I set that down, actually went to work a lot in the robotics lab, got out of school, and found that my knowledge of software was really the modern screwdriver that would let an engineer go into a wide variety of places. I say it was a software engineer for many years after school. And for some of it, it was, you know, you write a children's game here, you know, a a data entry system here or there. But it got more and more technical. And we we got uh, more manufacturing jobs, which is awesome. And we got more and more technical simulations, like, simulating the spread of disease, outbreaks, and in and out of daycare centers and such, which at the time we joked was zombie apocalypse, but uh, after last year, well. So
0: eventually you took the plunge into the NASA CubeSat Challenge. Tell
1: me about the competition. I think at the time there were about a dozen teams, mm-hmm. and that's saying a lot because it's an enormous amount of effort to to move forward. Uh, through the years it narrowed down. And then recently we've learned that it has expanded again. You know, as we really? are close to the deadline, some uh, you know true skunk works stealth mode teams are coming out and it's getting very exciting.
0: But you are one of three teams selected to send the your satellite with the plasma thruster on the Artemis, and you've got a deadline coming up very we're talking here almost on the 4th of July, or coming up on that weekend. You've got a deadline pertinent to that coming up soon, correct?
1: Yes, we have to turn in the satellite with all software done, all software tested. Every We've already passed the point where all the every bolt has to be turned and can't be touched again. Now we've got to finish all the software and turn that in on July 15th to NASA.
0: And so then NASA duct tapes it to the uh, Artemis 1, and off space, it goes. Space
1: duct tapes it. Space duct tapes. <laughs> space Very duct important.
0: tapes. And off it goes in November. And tell me two things and i think you touched on this before but help me out it's going to do specifically what and for who and then what happens after that in 2022 and 23 i know some of it has to do with the spin-off technology some of it's a continuation with nasa but first of all what's it going to do and for who once it's out there in deep space
1: okay well its uh, foremost mission is to demonstrate technology well, actually, its foremost mission is to win prize money in the CubeQuest Challenge, period. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to do that by accomplishing its second mission of demonstrating technology. And part of that demonstration is a communication system demo. And the best way to demo the communication is with a STEM payload that is riding on board, which is created by a variety of students around the country. And that STEM payload is sending back very interesting data And those people are going to crawl through that data with a fine tooth comb. And so if we mess up anything in the communication, they'll know it. But if we get the communication right, they'll know it as well. And so that's the ultimate validation for the TECO demo is, does it yield science products that are useful?
0: You must have another name for it besides that long and numerical name you gave it at the beginning, like Bill or, or something. Is there a short name for your satellite? We just call it Miles. Miles. Okay. Yeah. What is Miles? I know it is it an Earth orbit at vast distances, or what's its itinerary?
1: Well, it's got a very exciting first week where it gets to slingshot around the Moon. That is nerve-wracking. If You remember the movie Armageddon, where they slingshot around the Moon, I and mean, it's, it's kind of exciting. But after that, it's a slow drift out to about 8 million kilometers as a big halo orbit around Earth. We're technically orbiting the sun, but our sun orbit, I mean, the sun is the center that has gravitational control of the spaceship. Sorry, going into engineering mode, Uh, not Earth. So we are a spaceship, not a satellite, because we're not orbiting Earth. But our orbit coincides with Earth's orbit so well that from Earth's perspective, it looks like we're loosely circling it like a big spirograph. Okay. After about a year, According to the rules, the whole thing has to shut down. Oh, really? uh, Yeah. Engineer mode has to dump all potential energy so as not to pose a uh, transmission hazard, you know, radio hazard, or a debris hazard. If something were to strike it, there would be no added energy added to the debris because of our craft.
0: Where does it physically go at that point? Does it stay in the same orbit, or does it come back to Tampa and retire in a nice uh, beachfront condo?
1: Man, if we could pull that off, that would be some next-level <laughs> stuff. But no, it is just forever out there. It's a little time capsule. We have some messages written inside the craft as a time capsule. There's cool. a few hidden messages. For instance, the thruster. The thruster itself is covered on all the PC boards. is uh, covered with poems. It has a Robert Frost poem on it. It has the Traveler's Prayer. It has quotes from the Firefly series on it. It has all these inspirational quotes out there as part of the time capsule.
0: Wow. Well, let's go to the second part of the question. First of all, when does that, when does that, it's one year after deployment. That one year, it
1: does, so it'll be uh, November 22 that it goes silent.
0: So, I'm sure you're monitoring and working with that uh, over 2022, but what happens to Miles Space in 2022 and Miles Space and Team Miles in 2022, 23, and beyond?
1: Well, Miles Space is selling those thrusters, Mm -hmm. and it is selling the communication software, which makes effective, you know, high-quality communication from that distance with low power practical. So... This will be a good tech demo, and hopefully, we'll put on the uh, salesman hats here and really go to town there, because that will benefit all the Team Miles members. Team Miles has a financial stake in uh, Milespace success. So, uh, you know, we all talk about how we're obligated to our shareholders. My shareholders are the people I'm in the trenches with, Team Miles. We have literally bled onto these circuit boards. And, you know, I'm sure you have. I've seen pages of notes, honest to God, with paper cuts and dots of blood on them. We have bled for this project, you know. So, team, you know, Miles Space will continue and will continue to financially benefit the Team Miles members. After the mission is done, Team Miles will be retired aside from the financial benefit. Although, I hope that I'm not sure if we do another contest. We might reorganize under a different team name. but Team Miles, as an event, will close out. Everybody who who was on the team, whether their role was small or big, will continue to benefit through Milespace's actions because that's in and a Miles team spa- of
0: Milespace will continue working on technologies, communications, and various and things. You gotcha. Okay. Tell me, uh, just as we get near the end here, tell me. What have you learned from this? What does Westphaler, space satellite pioneer, tell Westphaler GMI student of a couple of decades or more ago?
1: You're not as good a C coder as you think. There are some bugs in your code, and it would save you a lot of time if you could find those twenty years ago. <laughs> that aside, you know the label on your career is not as critical as you think. It's the critical thinking that you think with. That will make your career and that's what's being taught to you and the engineering degree you pick is the one that will fascinate you and keep you interested while the real knowledge is being put into your head that's extremely important and our ra at the dorm tried to tell that to us in the first day we were there and it didn't make sense until 10 years later that's Uh, one of those things you have to learn for yourself i think yes yes but i can say i think i learned it a couple years sooner Because he put that in my head, and it was always a mystery sitting there. What did he really mean by that? The other thing I would tell him, tell 20 years ago, up your social game. People, your vision is only as useful as the people you can attract to it. You can amplify your vision. Cut the time and build a bigger, bigger vision than you could ever dream. If you can get excited about it and convey that excitement to other people. So up your game, you know, and it's not a game. I mean, just be up your expressiveness about your passion. Find it, express it, defend it, teach it. These things are massively important. They are as important as sitting in the corner with your computer and finding that eureka moment with an equation.
0: I saw something you wrote or said about small, loud steps pertaining to your vision.
1: Yes, that was a hard-learned hard-learned lesson that I will say, you know, as you make progress, you need to prove you have momentum. Thrust your pun. And you're proving that momentum by having small steps that are loud. You're going to need that. You're going to need to announce to people you are making progress. You need to show them you have progress with small steps that so they can understand. People are going to hear your idea and say, that's too big. I'm just going to disengage. Rocket science is the the key thing. We're like, oh, that's too hard, and boy, it shuts down a conversation. It doesn't have to, you know. As you've shown here, you know, you can have a conversation about it without people being, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to think about it. So, make those small steps so people stay engaged. Be loud about it so that other people know about it and get attracted to you, as well as publishing that, pushing to that will give you the mementos you need to remind yourself of what you're capable of in the dark days when things are tough. So it helps all around.
0: There must be something in there as well about following your dreams. Uh, You started with a dream of space as you related in sixth, sixth grade. You even set it aside for 20 years, and yet you followed
1: your dreams. So what do you have to say about that subject? I'll use a GMI metaphor. Dogged determination will get you where you're going. Well, that's a double
0: entendre almost, where GMI and Kettering are concerned.
1: It is. Thank you for noticing. I'm proud of that one. <laughs> <laughs> and which itself is a double entendre. So I'm proud of GMI and what Kettering has become. But no, follow your dreams. I mean, follow your dreams is so it's it's been so said, right? But Build that dogged determination. Do the things that frustrate you and finish them, and you will learn what you're made of and get have the hope for what you can keep doing. So stick with that determination. Tell people about your dream. Tell yourself about your dream. Be brave to keep dreaming, and don't apologize for having the dream. Go for it.
0: Well, Wes Phaler, the founder and creator of, of uh, a plasma thruster which is heading into space this year in 2021 with NASA on Artemis 1. Thank you very much for talking about it. This has been very, very entertaining, enlightening, inspiring, and I appreciate it. And I wish you the best of luck. We'll be following in November when Artemis takes off and cheering you along.
1: Thanks, Tom. Pleasure meeting you.
0: Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.